0: Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canadaland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canadaland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to CanadaLand.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.
1: From CanadaLand, this is OPPO.
0: I'm Jen Gerson in Calgary.
1: And I'm Sandy Garrosino in Vancouver. Tomorrow's the Throne Speech.
0: all that throne speech ambition I said I was uncomfortable with two weeks ago, maybe not so much of an issue after all, because there are headlines everywhere about how the Liberals are tempering expectations.
1: Well, I always thought that a lot of that was running up flagpoles and and testing out options. I don't know how serious they ever were about some of these things, but reports are saying that some Liberals are making universal basic income a top priority. So we'll be talking to Floyd Marinescu, a self-described CEO activist for universal basic income, and he'll talk about how feasible this idea really is.
0: Meanwhile, another snap election appears to be imminent in that province that everybody forgets about, right Sandy?
1: We don't forget about it here in BC and by the time this is actually being aired it may not be imminent, it may be a done deal, we may be going to the polls and in fact we probably are.
0: And so it'll be a two-guest show today, we'll also chat with Sonia Frisnau who is the newly chosen leader of the BC Green Party and her reaction to the snap election. Uh, i nah. But first, a really quick update on that inquiry that Jason Kenney called for in 2019. That's right, an inquiry into the so-called foreign-funded environmentalists who are opposing the uh, Alberta oil sands, tar sands, whatever you want to call them. I don't personally care. Last Wednesday, a new update emerged. There was a Globe article that said that the uh, guy who's at the head of the inquiry, Stephen Allen, is calling for yet another extension in addition to the previous extension and the $1 million additional top-up on the $2.5 million top-up that he had previously received. Sandy, I know that we're going to get into this because you and I both absolutely love this story. Any thoughts right off the top?
1: To me, this is such a hot potato and a problem for Alberta's inquiry commissioner, Steve Allen. I've written on this extensively in the past year, and I've looked into the issue about the so-called conspiracy theory about foreign funding. First of all, there's nothing unusual or even out of the norm for of ordinary patterning for Canadian charities and and non-profit organizations seeking grants from international foundations. I did a deep dive into this and I knew right off the bat that Steve Allen was going to come into a serious problem because he wasn't going to be able to make the findings that his terms of reference pretty much already preordained. He was supposed to pretty much say these terrible organizations are doing all these terrible things when the facts on the ground don't really support it. And to no one's surprise, He has sought now two extensions and a change in the terms of reference. This is just going to be a mess. Watch this space.
0: Yeah, we're both going to delve into this um, at a later point because, I mean, there's a lot to be said about grifting and the UCP backroom boys and how this all kind of plays out in reality. The degree to which this inquiry is playing to a conspiracy theory within the province that um, appeases um, a lot of disaffected people, especially in the oil and gas sector, who feel like there must be someone to blame for the decline in their industry you know, there's a lot here. Uh, we don't have time to get into it this week. There's just too much else going
1: on. One other thing that I wanted to mention is, of course, the passing of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I just want to make a personal statement about this, having um, entered law school just seven years after the roe versus wade decision which she was counsel on she was the lawyer who was making that argument to the u.s supreme court for abortion rights and reproductive freedom not only that she's been a champion for her entire career or was a champion for her entire career for equality rights and women's rights and As someone who entered law school, and one of my my evidence professors was Beverly McLaughlin, who was then to go on and become the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada before her retirement, the women who led this movement were giants, as we have seen and are seeing now in the United States, the incredible importance of the legal system and advocacy and judicial decision-making around equality rights. This woman is a giant. She led a revolution today at least half of law schools and law students are female, and we're seeing more and more and more racial cultural diversity entering into the legal profession, which is the absolute linchpin of equality for everyone. And I just want to take my hat off to her. There's huge amount of calculation, of course, and political controversy over what's going to happen to that seat. But in this moment, today, I just want to say thanks to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She changed my life. She changed millions and millions of lives. A few hours ago, I met with the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia, Janet Austin, and she has granted my request to dissolve the Legislative Assembly, and the general election will be held in British Columbia on Saturday,
0: October 24th.
1: So an election has been called in British Columbia for this fall for October twenty-fourth. Speculated that this was sparked by a poll from Angus Reid in late August that showed BC NDP Premier John Horgan at 69% approval rating, the highest of all premiers across Canada. This snap election betrays the confidence and supply agreement that the Green Party and the NDP had entered into. And so we spoke to Sonia Furstenau, the new BC Green Party leader, about that election coming on.
0: And we should note that we spoke to her just moments before uh, the decision came through that there would be a snap election, so please forgive our tenses. Um, but great, look good for, good for us for being so ahead of the game that we got her on the show in time, eh?
2: Tell us what your position is and, and why you're taking that now. I mean, we have a stable governing situation here in British Columbia. We just came through a summer session in which a budget was passed in which all three parties agreed to the $1.5 billion in recovery spending. And what is needed right now is not a focus on uh, a campaign trail, but a focus on the people of British Columbia who are anxious about COVID-19, who are anxious about their financial security. They're anxious about their kids being back in school. You know, this is a time when the people of British Columbia need to know That the government is putting them first.
0: Explain to us what you think Horgan's calculation is. Is the assumption here that if he calls a snap election that the NDP is going to sweep to a majority?
2: That's clearly what his calculation is and his party's calculation is. And they they do this based on polling, which, again, in in a time like this, in a global pandemic, to have a governing party making decisions based on polling uh, is irresponsible.
0: Doesn't it also seem like a little bit of a disingenuous move in the sense that, I mean, we, we know that all of the leaders um, enjoyed a huge bump of approval and popularity mm-hmm. as a result of COVID. I mean, it's kind of an interesting question as to whether or not that approval bump is just a result of the crisis itself mm-hmm. or whether or not it represents a real and lasting coalition that will actually come out to the polls.
2: So the the approval bump was because of the population, the people of B.C., Feeling like this government managed through the crisis. and 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 one of the reasons we did so well here in British Columbia is because um, Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix, were providing that information on a daily basis. It was depoliticized. We came together in March, all three parties. we, We approved $5 billion in spending to manage and navigate through this crisis because that's the right thing to do in a crisis, which is everybody come together and say, how do we put the interests of people first? The mistake that I would say John Horgan and his party are making right now is to think that by throwing away what has been excellent and how we've managed this crisis, uh, the cooperation, the collaboration, the putting the provincial health officer front and center, to think that the approval rating that has gone along with you handled this crisis well will carry over to uh, an unnecessary election called at a time when people's levels of anxiety and uncertainty are probably higher than they've been in their lives for the most part. I think that 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 is a bad calculation.
1: Your predecessor says that calling an election would not be a violation of the confidence and supply agreement that, uh, that your party entered into as a condition of supporting the BC NDP. Mm-hmm. Where does your party stand on that? You're, you're the leader. You, mm-hmm. you entered, your party entered into this agreement. Your predecessor says, oh, that's not a problem. Where do you stand?
2: Uh, well, I just look at the actual agreement and what it says. And it very clearly says that no election will be called before the fall of 2021. That's what it says. It's in writing. We all signed our names on that. I'm not sure how you uh, dispute that. But for me, putting my signature on that, meant something.
0: If your argument is that, you know, an election right now is unnecessary and it's cynical, then why was it necessary for the Green Party to hold a leadership race right now?
2: Oh, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. Explain to us why that's different. So it wasn't an unnecessary leadership race because the leader, the previous leader, stepped down. He announced he wasn't running again in the next election, and he stepped down as leader. So we were a party that didn't have a leader you know, if you'll hear them compare this to New Brunswick, well, they couldn't get agreement on a budget. We just passed Mm -hmm. a budget a month ago in this legislature. This government has everything it needs to carry on governing. They have a budget, they have uh, a stable government. So there's there's no comparison really to be made between uh, either New Brunswick election, the scheduled Saskatchewan election, and this completely unnecessary election.
1: Sonia, first to know, your party, the Green Party, currently holds the balance of power. And as the polls are consistently showing, B.C. Premier John Horgan is ranked uh, at either at or near the the top of Canadian or in Canada of provincial leaders for support. Clearly, your party has a lot to lose should a Premier Horgan win a majority government I'd like to ask you a little bit about the BC situation, because there was absolutely remarkable unity amongst all parties uh, approaching the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Do you feel at all that the Premier is taking advantage of what was, in a sense, at least a tacit, if not an overt agreement, to cut the politics mm-hmm. as we manage this um, pandemic, and that he has been the beneficiary mm-hmm. of enormous cross-party unity, bipartisan unity, in that it that, that it would violate that understanding of the support, not only amongst from the Green Party but also the BC Liberal Party, which has been very, very quiet and supportive of the government as we manage through this pandemic.
2: Yeah, Sandy, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, three years of a minority government in British Columbia, and it has delivered enormous change, positive outcomes. So we've banned big money from politics in BC. We've introduced, and this was very much a BC Green initiative, lobbying reform. So you can now see who's lobbying whom and how many times. We've seen massive changes, uh, you know, professional reliance reform. That was why I got into Politics was because of uh, recognizing that professional reliance and the conflicts of interest that go with that needed reform, and and we have a hundred page page uh, act called the Professional Governance Act that brings government oversight back to decisions that are being made on resource decisions. We have Clean BC, which was very much uh, a Green Party driven initiative to look at an economy uh, that can be the transformative economy to get to. A transition away from fossil fuel economy. This has been uh, such a fantastic example of why minority governments are better at delivering good governance, good outcomes, progressive outcomes. And yes, you know, John Horgan's been a beneficiary of the goodwill and good intentions of, of all of the MLAs uh, and, and the other two opposition parties in this house, us and the BC Liberals, because we we decided very clearly. Uh, once COVID-19 hit, that some things are beyond politics. And that's what is so uh, disappointing about the decision that uh, this government seems to be making and John Horgan seems to be making is all of that goodwill that's been built, all of that trust in government that's been built this year, all of that collaboration, cooperation, which people want to see between politicians, between political parties. He's saying, you know... Uh, I'm just going to go ahead with my unnecessary election uh, based on my cynical calculation that I can benefit from all this good work uh, and maybe get myself a majority.
0: Sonia, the flip side to all of this is that uh, Canadians tend to punish early election calls and they especially tend to punish cynical early election calls. I mean, here in Alberta, the PCs lost a 44 year dynasty when they cynically called an early election. Um, And I think that if you go back in Canadian history, you see this pattern play out again and again and again in federal and provincial politics. I recognize that you're making sort of a moral argument against an early election, but this might actually work out to your benefit and to the benefit of the Liberal Party more specifically.
2: Well, I intend to you know, to demonstrate to British Columbians the contribution that we've we as the Green Caucus have been making for the last three years, and it's significant. We have moved forward an enormous part of our platform from from t- three years ago. Uh, we're going to put out an equally inspiring uh, and forward looking platform right now.
0: Yeah, so, Sonia, would you would you be open to a coalition with the Liberals?
2: You know, I'm not going to speculate on on anything. We signed the confidence and supply agreement in 2017. The three of us put our signatures on it. Every NDP caucus members, all 41 of them, signed it as well. And that agreement was a commitment to go to October 2021. But
0: if they're breaking that agreement, that sort of empowers you to break that agreement yourself. I mean, I, I think you're morally entitled to 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 then turn around to the liberals and say, they broke faith with us. Do yeah. you want to form a liberal? I, I don't yeah. think that that's a, that's, a, that's a hard sell.
2: Although we would have had to cynically been working against our agreement uh, for quite some time to, to achieve that. We have not been working against that agreement. We have been leaning into that agreement. You're the leader. You can start working against it now if you want. I mean, you know, that's certainly uh, I expect a conversation. But at, at this point, we have been true to our word. And I think we need more of that in politics, not less.
1: Would Andrew Weaver go along with you? Andrew Weaver being your, the former leader of the BC Green Party who has um, who stepped down as leader, but then also in a surprising move declared himself to be an independent, sitting as an independent MLA, having been elected as, as the leader of the Green Party. Would he even go with you in a move like that?
2: I can't speculate on, on what, he would be thinking of, but, you know, and he's come out saying that he would endorse John Horgan as the next premier. And and this is a very big difference between us. I can't endorse John Horgan as the next premier. John Horgan and his government have given more money, more subsidies to the fossil fuel industry than the previous government. John Horgan and his government have overseen the cutting down of some of the last old growth forests Uh, on the planet. Is that why Weaver ultimately split from the Green Party? He he had his own decisions to make and he had health issues and and family issues that he was dealing with. And he's chosen to sit as an independent. We have moved forward. We are looking forward. We've come through this leadership race. I'm very excited about the direction of this party now.
0: Sonia, do you think that it's part of Horgan's calculation here? Is he suggesting that you need to call a snap election because he feels that he actually can't work with you to form a coalition?
2: Well, that would be patently untrue because we've adhered to every part of the agreement. The confidence votes, supply votes, good faith, no surprises. We have worked very hard. Is there even an appetite for an election at this time? According to polling that's been done in the last week, somewhere in the neighborhood of 85% of people who've been asked do not want an election right now.
1: But do you think that that will change votes? Where where's, Where do you see... The dust settling on
2: this. You know, as you pointed out, I think, Janet, was you saying it earlier, that historically, when you look at these cynical early election calls, the, the governments that do this don't tend to be rewarded.
0: So in addition to a snap election in British Columbia, we are expecting a federal throne speech on Wednesday. Now, A couple of weeks ago, Sandy and I were talking about this. You know, it sounded like the liberal governments were setting up this throne speech to be this huge, big, transformational building from year zero type thing. Since then, they seem to have suggested that we should be really tempering our expectations a bit. Doesn't surprise me. There are some polls coming out from places like Ipsos suggesting that actually the appetite among Canadians for big transformational change is not high. What most Canadians really want is, you know, a focus on COVID, focused on healthcare, and a focus on economic recovery. Pretty bread and butter stuff. The appetite for things like climate change and issues of, of, of race and equity are way down there and way below these other issues brought about by COVID and the pandemic.
1: Well, the thing that has caught my eye on the heels of CERB, there are reports that Liberal MPs are considering implementing a universal basic income. It's considered so important that they've designated it their top priority, guaranteeing that it will go directly to the November 12th to 15th convention for debate and a vote. So, for more, we're joined today by Floyd Marinescu, CEO activist for universal
0: basic income and founder of UBI Works. What does a CEO activist for universal basic income mean exactly?
3: Well, it means I'm one of many in the Canada's business community who supports basic income. We think it's going to result in a a fairer and faster economic recovery. We think it's going to be the basis of our future prosperity as we navigate to an increasingly automated world. And my position is not uncommon. I just decided to take action and I'm sponsoring and getting involved in a lot of activities to spread the message about universal basic income. The, The first of which happened two years ago when I rallied 120 fellow Canadian CEOs to endorse basic income and ask uh, Doug Ford to not cancel the Ontario pilot.
1: Give us a sense of your own business background and uh, the backgrounds of the business community that has come in to support this concept.
3: I've been running an international business headquartered out of Canada. We do trade shows around the world, uh, as well as for serving software engineers, as well as a news website where uh, millions of software engineers read to keep up with trends. Uh, Went to University of Waterloo uh, with a computer science degree. Uh, I've started businesses in China and Brazil and the UK. Uh, as well as do a number of a lot of angel investing, and I am part of a, a larger group of uh, Canadian business owners and CEOs who are for a basic income. We see it as an economic good. Uh, we see it as an economic reform, as much as it is, as it is a social reform to make the economy work for people again uh, and, and help us transition as we are currently in what many call the the fourth industrial revolution.
1: Can you tell us what you mean by the fourth industrial revolution?
3: Right. In every industrial revolution, what we see is a certain group of society, maybe let's say the top 30% entering into jobs that are highly valued and are needed in this new economy. And you see another segment, the bottom 40 to 50% become undervalued. Now we're facing a situation where we need to move into future jobs that are, are, are more creative, more knowledge oriented, uh, and, and in many cases won't pay enough because that's simply a, a factor of automation. We see demand for wage growth go down and people whose jobs are automated away usually transition into other industries that have a lower lower demand uh, ag- demand for wage labor. And uh, so a basic income is the bold program that we need to navigate this industrial revolution. And we've seen it in all the numbers and here's what the numbers look like. You see the middle class shrinking, you see the share of jobs that are low income increase You have economists projecting that the the majority of future job creation is in what could be broadly categorized as wealth services, servicing wealthy people. And you see a a smaller group, top 20, maybe 30% of earners who are seeing wage growth. That is not a fair economy. That is not a just society. We need a way that we all participate in these gains.
0: So Floyd, when we talk about universal basic income, we could be talking about a lot of different things. Um, you know, there are some people who have suggested a universal basic income would be a replacement for existing payments and transfers. There are some people who see it as uh, an addition to, to the, the welfare state as it's currently envisioned and conceived. What kind of a universal basic income are you talking about?
3: So UBI Works put out a proposal. We call it Recovery UBI. At this point in time, it has over 16,000 signatures of Canadians all across the political spectrum. And in our plan, we see this as a basic income that would be quick to roll out in a pandemic economy where there isn't time uh, for governments to get into protracted negotiations about programs and and offerings and and who delivers what. So what we put out is a, a plan to give um, all adults, including seniors, uh, people on social assistance, an additional $500 a month tax-free, uh, as well as that is a universal dividend. It is giving everyone a share of the economy. And then on top of that, to have a basic income guarantee, uh, w- which is a, a program where the, the less you have, the, the more of, it you, of the benefit you, you get. And that would be structured as a top up on top of the dividend, as well as any other uh, government transfers uh, that someone gets to ensure that everyone can make more than $2,000 a month.
0: So just so that we're clear that what, what, what this would be is that it would be 500 bucks right off the top for everybody an additional payment for people who are you know, poorer or below the poverty line, and then this would be in addition to existing wealth and transfers?
3: This would be on, on top of it as a top-up to ensure that we have a guarantee of $2,000 a month uh, for all adults, uh, inclusive of all existing other programs. So we're not replacing them, we're topping it up, and that would allow for months or years following for common sense and compassionate consolidations to happen uh, between provinces and government and 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 to affect the types of efficiencies that that some are calling for. We don't think now is the time to be discussing those things. Now people need relief and we need economic stimulus.
0: And of course, we're not just talking about a recovery UBI. You would like to see this become a permanent program.
3: We think a permanent basic income is essential uh, to transition to a better economy, an economy where people have time to retrain, have time to and the mindshare to invest in better long-term outcomes for themselves. You know, We are in the fourth industrial revolution.
1: It's very clear that we are in another revolution that will have as dislocating, in fact, probably more dislocating impacts on employment and income than previous industrial revolutions or economic revolutions revolutions. revolutions. We're in that phase. And we do have to somehow find a way to manage that in an uncertain environment. How have you costed out this uh, proposal as a net cost to government?
3: Right. So we looked at uh, using StatsCan data, um, a lot of Canadians are already getting some form of government transfer or another, whether it's coming from a tax credit or, or an actual social program. So the, the fastest way to determine the cost of a basic income is, is not to get involved in discussions about what you're going to replace, at least not yet. But let's look at the net cost of creating this top up to get to create an income guarantee, uh, inclusive of all of the programs, at least as a sh- in a short term manner. And by our estimations, to do that, and we have the plan on ubiworks.ca, the the net cost would be $199 billion.
0: That's a very, very low cost. According to a column by Chris Elliott at the National Post, we could send $1,000 to every adult Canadian for a year, a very basic income indeed, according to him, and you've just spent $364 billion. If you up that and send $2,000 a month just to the 3.5 million Canadians who are living below the poverty line, you've spent close to $84 billion. Well, there would be net costs, I guess.
3: Right, because our plan is a mixture, of, a common sense mixture of those two ideas. So if you give $1,000 a month to ad- all adults, you wouldn't make a dent on poverty, and people wouldn't be able to take the time they need to retrain. You wouldn't be able to buy time with $1,000 a month. Uh, similarly... Uh, if you only do a basic income guarantee, in which case you're you're only lifting uh, people from the bottom and keeping them above subsistence levels, you're also not creating a, a more equal society. You're not creating you're not giving a, a wage increase to people in, in working poverty. And two thirds of people in poverty are working.
0: Floyd, I'm I'm pointing out that your math doesn't add up. You're, you're suggesting a, a minimum top-up of not $1,000, but $500 a month just to start. Okay, well, that alone gets you, what, to $150, $180 billion. And on top of that, you also want a, a graduated or a progressive top-up. On top of that, you're, gonna, you're claiming this is only going to add up to $199 billion. That, not, that don't make no sense. We're
3: already fairly progressive. We already have a number of, of programs in place. And if you do the math, and we've done it, and it's all online, our model is publicly available, the actual costs to top people up once you've already given all adults $500 a month, on top of all existing other social programs, is actually very small. It was only like another $30 billion or so. So it gets you to the numbers that I'm mentioning.
0: Yeah, okay. So here's my other question is that we just got a report back from the Parliamentary Budgetary Office that has very explicitly stated that we cannot continue spending at the rate that we've been spending over the last year. Essentially, the PBO gave the Liberal government an ultimatum and said, the rates at which we are spending we can continue to do for a year or two at most, at which point it becomes, quote, unsustainable. Which means the only way that we are going to massively ramp up spending without subsequently and in parallel cutting down other programs is either a pretty radical increase in, uh, of taxation or a cutting of other types of welfare state programs.
3: Well, it's important to note that a national rollout of a basic income that matches that that was tried in Ontario would only cost a 3% GST increase, as was estimated in a National Post article.
0: So so an increase of 3% is going to bring in an extra, what, $24 billion federally, and you want to spend money on what you claim to be a $200 billion program.
3: That's right, because that's what it's going to take to create a fair economy that, that increases wages for all and gives us all a share of the economy. On our website, we show eight different ways to pay for that. We've actually accumulated over a trillion dollars of funding ideas from various tax reform institutions over the last 10 years and we've shown eight collections that represent completely different ideological points of view on how you could raise uh, enough money to pay for, for this kind of program.
1: Would the UBI be taxable?
3: Uh, we don't feel it should be taxable.
1: But is it then universal?
3: The $500 a month would be universal and the $2,000 income guarantee would be income tested.
1: What trends are you seeing in future employment? Technology can only employ so many people, can it not? We're watching our resource economy start to shrivel and die on the vine in some areas and enter full-blown crises in others. Where is this going? What is the forward trajectory if we don't introduce some form of income supplement?
3: In a fourth industrial revolution, we are seeing half the country being devalued in the work that they do. We're seeing automation rapidly increasing, especially in the pandemic. Because what do businesses do when they're faced with survival? They try and do more with less, the same as all of us do. And that's what's happening now. We're seeing an increase in the deployment of of self-serve checkout kiosks. We're seeing deployments of artificial intelligence software and banking and call centers. We're seeing self-driving trucks on the road now already in in certain states in, in the US. Change is coming rapidly. So at the very least, we need to have a basic income guarantee to allow people the, the time to navigate and, and, and find these jobs of the future. What will they be? There are always new jobs being created, but the problem is that a lot of the new jobs being created are, are low-income work. So that's why we see that on top of a basic income guarantee, it's essential we have a dividend part. So we engage in effect, effectively a form of national revenue sharing because that's what the dividend does. It gives everyone a share of the economy.
0: My fear about this is that there's a good outcome here and there's a bad outcome. And the bad outcome is that what the UBI does is it entrenches a, um, an underclass. It entrenches a whole group of Canadians who are essentially mired in dependency and poverty for the for the foreseeable future. And knowing politics like we do, we know that this $2,000 is not going to keep up to the reality of the cost of living. We know that it's going to be very, very hard for future governments to continuing to up the minimum income to keep up with what it actually costs to survive. So my concern here is that rather than creating a more innovative economy that is more agile and more able to respond to the very hard realities coming down the pipe that the market has for us, what we are in fact doing is the exact opposite.
3: I actually think it'll prevent that outcome because that outcome that you're, you're suggesting is already happening. Are we not already effectively creating an underclass of people who have to work 60 hour weeks between multiple gig jobs to get by? A basic income is what will prevent that, it'll prevent that, it'll make people unexploitable financially. They'll be able to, to, do, to make better choices for their future, seek better work.
0: And you think that's gonna create a more competitive, more innovative economy in the global landscape in the long run?
3: Absolutely, we will, we will stand out globally. Let's look at what creates wealth, what creates jobs. It's not only investments, it's innovation.
0: But this totally disincentivizes innovation.
3: That's the complete opposite of that. <laughs> innovation requires risk-taking. What risk-taking can people take when, when half of Canadians are living check to check?
0: What what risk taking are they incentivized to take when there's no financial incentive for them to do so?
3: That's like saying there's no incentive to entrepreneurship.
0: Oh, there's a huge incentive to entrepreneurship. I'm an entrepreneur myself. Believe me, it's not because the government pays me a check every day that, I was, that, that, that I'm able to do that.
3: Actually, it is because you benefited from hundreds of thousands of dollars of public investment in your education. And, and similar with this, if people can actually have basic needs met, they can aspire to, to greater challenges in life. And that's why a number of the CEOs who actually signed that letter uh, told me that, that, they, that one of the reasons that they personally got involved in this is because they themselves had a form of income support that allowed them to take risks to, to get off a high-paying job and start a business or, or even a low-paying job and start a business.
1: Would it be fair to say that most of the CEOs and business people that uh, are in support of the universal basic income, does it primarily come from the tech sector, as you yourself do?
3: If you check out the CEOs for BasicIncome.ca and look at some of the signatories there, they're from all over the board. Actually, only 20% of them were from the tech sector.
1: One of the things that I think that both Jen and I and I think every Canadian listening to this will be asking themselves is, how are we going to generate the taxes that will cover the cost for this? And GST is certainly one part, but this would require an extremely dramatic overhaul of the tax structure as it now stands. Where do you see that, that tax revenue coming from primarily?
3: Certainly. Well, ubiworks.ca slash how to pay. I'll, I'll name some of the collections that we've put here. Uh, one collection is involving uh, corporations and economic activity paying more, or with various increases and in reforms on, on corporate taxation that have been proposed by a number of institutes over the last 10 years, as well as increasing the federal GST to match European levels uh, of a 10% increase.
1: What would be the corporate tax increase?
3: Corporate tax itself would be up by 5%, a 10% federal GST increase, a number of other things, carbon price going up to $75, Uh, These are part of one collection only. We have another collection that that emphasizes high income earners paying more, which includes a 2% wealth tax, changes to capital gains, changes to the how RSP tax breaks are calculated. Uh, We have another uh, one that is called tax environmental degradation slash use of the commons. This would would introduce levies on resource extraction, on the EM spectrum, on uh, eliminate fossil fuel subsidies, a small land value tax, we have a land value tax, which by itself could pay for a basic income and would also have other po- positive benefits to to the way land is used and the productivity, uh, how we're productively using our land and how much, um, how much available housing stock we have for Canadians.
0: The other concern that I have with the UBI is the potential inflationary effects of just handing everybody a cheque. You start handing everybody a check and all of a sudden landlords know that you can afford more rent. You start handing everybody a check and everybody knows that you have more money in the bank to spend on other types of essential goods and services. So I mean, one of my concerns about this is that all of the experiments that have been done on the UBI so far have been done in fairly small scale places, in sort of small towns, in, in, in pilot projects. We haven't actually seen what the potential inflationary effects are of doing UBI on a national scale.
3: Uh, Most people misunderstand inflation. It's a factor of supply and demand. So, first of all, you're not printing new money, especially if it's coming from tax reform. Uh, We didn't see inflation go up when minimum wage was increased in Ontario. So it's important to note that the Canada Child Benefit, again, which is money in the hands primarily of, of the working poor and people in poverty, has not impacted inflation and it has been a huge economic stimulus, contributing nearly half a million jobs, adding 2.1% to our federal GST. So why would a basic income program that is just doing more of that create inflation? And more money in the hands of people who are gonna spend it in our economy, buying basic goods and services, why would that create inflation? It's not like China and, and, and Main Street businesses can't scale to meet the demand.
1: Last question, uh, Floyd Marin ask you, have you been in touch with the Liberal cabinet uh, over this, the federal government?
3: We're doing as much lobbying as we can. We're all holding our breath to see what happens on on Wednesday on the throne speech. And uh, we hope that there's an outcome comes out that includes a basic income. We think it'll result in a more fair and fast recovery. And you can see our plan at ubiworks.ca slash recovery.
0: So Sandy, were you frustrated by that interview? I
1: wanted to hear harder numbers. I wanted to hear a clearer picture for listeners as to just how severe this employment and income situation is going to get. It's one thing we all know inequality is very bad now, that uh, people who are stuck in the lower income brackets have no real leverage. The rungs on the ladder up are broken. But I would have liked to have heard more about how much worse this is uh, going to get. And I think there's a reason why the tech industry has been uh, pushing this more than other sectors is because they know what kind of gun we're staring down the barrel of. And then I wanted to hear a little bit clearer enunciation of how are we going to pay for it? And I'm not sure that there's a right answer to this at all. I think we're, we, we could be in for an extremely nasty surprise going forward.
0: What are your thoughts? People very often don't act in their best long-term interest with immediate resources. They act for their immediate interests, which is why we've discovered that focusing that wealth to certain institutions and and, and certain sort of broader government programs tends to be a more effective way to achieve the types of outcomes that you're looking to achieve. I don't know what specific outcome a UBI is seeking to achieve, and I don't know that it can't be better achieved through more focused spending or more institutionally based programs. That's my concern with a lot of this.
1: My concern is that this is a problem that might not have a solution and that the politics are going to become much more difficult. As we've gone through this pandemic, I think that the Canadians' tolerance, in fact, over across the world, tolerance for increased government debt has been pretty good largely because interest rates are so low. But this is pandemic thinking. And I think that Canadians have generally, we've supported CERB and we've supported an intervention on a short-term basis. I am concerned that the long-term issues that our guest is talking about, these are intractable, they are deep, they are progressing, they will get worse. I think that even more than globalization, automation and artificial intelligence are going to have an incredibly devastating impact on employment. I don't know that we have an answer to that. And now it's time to open up the mailbag. Today's question comes from Justin via email. Jason Kenney has been Premier of Alberta for just over a year now, and I found it difficult to get a sense of how he's doing by following mainstream media and politicians' social media. What's your sense as to how Jason Kenney's government has been performing in key files amidst the economic
0: crisis in Alberta? My sense is that it's a bit of a mess, genuinely. Um, There's been some reliable polling data that's coming out that's showing that basically the NDP and the UCP are now once again neck and neck which is a pretty astonishing fall for the UCP, considering they won such an, a commanding mandate only a year ago. But it doesn't surprise me. I mean, one of my big concerns about the return of, you know, Jason Kenney riding home astride his, his white horse to save the Alberta economy from, um, you know, the barbarian socialists within the gates is that it was bullshit, right? Like that whole message, that whole narrative that he was crafting was built on absolute error. The issues Alberta are facing are macroeconomic, right? The tinkering around the edges that you're doing to, say, corporate tax rates or um, on Bill 6 or these sorts of issues that generated so much local opposition. I mean, they're, they're utterly marginal to the broader economic issues. And, of course, COVID has only compounded all of this. So Jason Kenney came in setting expectations sky high that all we needed to do was to get rid of these, you know, harpy leftists and like everything would be fine again. And terrible environmentalists. And these terrible environmentalists. And it turns out nothing is fine again. Nothing is better than it was a year ago. Um, So he set expectations really high and he's underdelivered and he really has no one to blame for that but himself, to be blunt.
1: But he's really facing, and Alberta has been facing this for a long time, this is not new. The province's dependence on oil and gas, they're a one-industry town, in a sense. I mean, there is agriculture. You would hope to see an attempt to diversify the economy, but Jason Kenney has been so wedded to the oil and gas sector and has really failed, I think, to... To show any kind of leadership in terms of preparing the province and the province's population for the hard choices that lie ahead, that there has to be a way out.
0: I also find that so misleading as if there's one oil and gas sector. I mean, this is this is one thing that I think people fundamentally misunderstand about his allegiances. It's not even to the quote oil and gas sector. It's one section of the oil and gas sector. That's true. It's small and junior oil and gas. It's 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 the mom and pop oil and gas sector. I mean, if you want to talk about some of the most outlandish and aggressive rhetoric. It's not coming from Shell. It's not That's coming right. from Imperial Oil. It's no. not coming from BP. They all know what's happening. It's not even coming from like the relatively larger players within the, within the oil sands. No. It's coming from like oil and gas companies that are being run out of people's basements, essentially. And that is what I find so frustrating about all of this is that, you know, Kenny's even sort of trashed the oil and gas sector in favor of the mom-and-pop oil and gas sector within, within Alberta. And that has been so counterproductive.
1: He almost chased the tech sector out of town. It's all about the messaging. And at a moment when you need to diversify your economy to pull the rug out from under a tech sector which has every reason to relocate to Alberta there's well, the costs yeah. are so much lower it it can be it, it there's so much potential there
0: if there were every reason for it to move to Alberta then we don't really need to be subsidizing the hell out of them but that's a whole other conversation i mean i agree with you fundamentally that like it's a competitive can't, can't, environment you, is the well, problem exactly right <laughs> you, you can't allow that things to be that stuff to become so competitive that your subsidies become so competitive that it actually ends up being a net loss for your province right but that's my kind of my issue with, with, with Kenny is that it's, you know, I don't think that the government can, quote unquote, diversify the economy. I, I just don't think that our, the previous attempts that the, that Alberta has to do that have been largely successful. I mean, I think mostly Alberta's diversified the economy pretty successfully over the last 30 years by keeping taxes really low. Right. It's become a, it's been a competitive place to set up business.
1: But yet the diverse the economy isn't diversified.
0: Well, it actually has. If you look at sort of a diversification by GDP ratio, we've diversified enormously from the 70s in particular. But that is a conversation about how to diversify the economy, how to go about it, what best tax tools and policies are at your disposable to do that is 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 totally valid and totally interesting. But yeah, Kenny does give this impression that he's like quadrupled down, and as I said, not even on the oil and gas sector, on a section of the oil and gas sector. And it's extremely alienating, even to other elements of the oil and gas sector, particularly as they're trying to present this greener... More friendly, less aggressive face to the rest of the world, and there's all these divestment eff- efforts going on. You know, you can't triple down on this super pugilistic. Guy uh, at a moment when the rest of the world is demanding that you show your greeniest, friendliest, Birkenstock-wearing face, it doesn't, it doesn't work anymore. This tactic doesn't work anymore. So, COVID, I think, has really shifted the math on a lot of this stuff in Alberta. But um, you know, we've yet to see really the pivot come from the Alberta government on a lot of these factors. And I just think that fundamentally the issue is that Kenny sold his base a lie. He sold his base this line about vote for me and I'm going to fix it, kids. And he can't. Anyway, if you have a question you want to answer on the show, you can tweet us at oppocast or send us an email at oppo at canadalenshow.com. That's it for Oppo this week. We'll be back again in two weeks. Once again, the ways to get in touch are at oppo at canadalenshow.com or on Twitter at oppocast. This episode
1: was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production help from Damalola Onime. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Theme music by Nathan Burley.